Hello, it's Jesse. A quick note before we begin. Later in this episode, I talk about a study correlating access to puberty blockers with later mental health outcomes. When I do so, I arguably misdescribe it in this subtle way. Not sure it warrants a correction, but I just want to be transparent about that. So if you go to the show notes, you'll see exactly what I mean, and you'll see why it doesn't affect the overall point I'm making in that part of the show. Thank you and enjoy. Jesse, how's it going? It's good. I've got some uh, some exciting Memorial Day weekend plans coming up. Really? You have plans? I'm shocked. I know. I know. It's the first time. I say exciting. I'm also a little bit scared. I have agreed to go on a camping trip. Wow. A Jew going camping. It's a first. A Jew going camping. I have no idea what I'm doing. If my understanding of camping is correct, there is a 30% chance I will be eaten by a bear mm-hmm. and a 30% chance I will be eaten by some sort of like upstate hillbilly family. Yeah, I I assume that you're doing this in Central Park. <laughs> yeah. No, it's just this like little community garden in Brooklyn around the corner for me. I, <laughs> no, it is it's significantly upstate in a mountainous region. And uh, I don't know what I'm doing. It's going to be with other people who know how to camp. I am scared of everything. So I don't know if I'm going to survive. I also am very whiny. So these are mostly people I don't know or know well. So I think I'm going to like, I think everyone's probably going to turn on me and kill me. That's how I'll meet my demise. Do you have any advice for uh, surviving the outdoors? Uh, Scream high pitch. You want to sound as much like a little girl as possible so that when a bear or a a local is coming for you, people will will run and try to protect you. Bigger, stronger men and women will come and try to protect (laughs) you. So high pitch squeal. You basically want the bear to be so embarrassed at your high pitch screech. It's like, I'll find someone else to eat. I can't, I don't have it in me to do this. Yeah, that's exactly what you want to do. Um, well, that sounds really fun, Jesse. I, I didn't actually realize it was a holiday. What holiday are we celebrating this week? Podcasters Day. Oh, okay. That explains it. Yeah. Have you, you're like, a, I thought you were a campy, outdoorsy person. Yeah, I go camping. The problem with camping is that it requires packing a lot of stuff. It can be very annoying, but yes, it is a, it is a thing that we are all obligated to do out here in the Pacific Northwest. Should I, as an experienced camper, how many laptops should I bring? Bring at least four or five laptops, as well as your Nintendo Wii. You want to bring your VR headset, and you definitely want to bring a queen-size air mattress. That's how I camp, always queen-size air mattress. It fills up the entire tent. Why don't I play it safe and just uh, bring enough lumber and contractors to just build like build a, a, house. a little cabin with Wi-Fi? Why don't you just play it safe and stay home? Always a possibility. What is this thing we're doing? This is Blocked and Reported, and I'm Katie Herzog. And I'm Jesse Single. And Katie, do we have a fucking show this week, don't we? We do have a show. Indeed. It is a show. It's definitely... No, you cannot take that away from us. Whatever else you say about the next hour, it is a podcast. It is a podcast. That's right. What should we talk about? Um... Oh, phew, what are we talking about today? This is your question. This is your week. You're in the spotlight this week. I've been doing I've been doing so much work on this show. You're just going to take it over this week. All right. Uh, we're going to talk about 60 Minutes did a segment on detransitioners and on youth gender medicine. And, you know, there's basically no online reaction to that at all. Just general approval, right? Oh, yeah. Just utter silence from the people. Uh, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the the resuscitation of the lab leak theory because we are both expert 
epidemiologists and microbiologists. We're going to mostly talk about sort of what this tells us about the media ecosystem. Uh, do we want to start with the 60 Minutes one? Uh, yeah, let's start with uh, detransitioners. All right. So Sunday night, uh, two Sundays ago, if you're listening to this on Monday or on the free feed, uh, Leslie Stahl of 60 Minutes hosted a segment that was mostly couched. Don't you think this show would be better if it were called 69 Minutes? <laughs> 69 minutes and 420 seconds. <laughs> with Leslie Stahl. Uh, with Leslie Stahl. Featuring Leslie Stahl. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah. Okay. So so Stahl hosted the segment. The, the framing, the immediate framing, the first thing you heard about were these conservative laws seeking to ban youth gender medicine. But as evidenced by the fact that 60 Minutes had been interviewing detransitioners for a while, according to some detransitioners themselves, I think they interviewed in the neighborhood of 30, according to one detransitioner I spoke with, uh, it was really a segment about detransition. And while it definitely came out against the state laws, it, it unflinchingly looked at the fact that there are some people who don't think they've received good care. It also included a a segment that was like destined to outrage people about the fact that some kids go on the internet and go on YouTube and decide they should train kids on YouTube. Like, no, I know it's very surprising. Uh, you know, these sort of, these sort of very glossy before and after videos about how transition saved people's lives, made them more confident, made, all them, of hotter. Which made them hotter inevitably. Um, all of which is, is, often true, but you know, you can, you can understand why people, parents might be concerned about 12 and 13 year olds, uh, developing strong feelings about this subject from YouTube. So, so there's a lot to unpack here. There was an immediate response from glad that I want to get into cause it was deranged, but w what were your initial impressions of the segment? So I thought that considering the sort of cultural restrictions on talking about this, they did a pretty damn good job. A lot of detransitioners were upset about the show because it was pitched to them as a show about detransition. And as you mentioned, it started the show with this. The first segment was really about these these bath or not bathroom bills, these these bills in places like Arkansas. And that might have been I don't know if it was half of it, but it was a very significant. The sort of trans pro trans perspective was like very was a very significant part of this. They did have Erica Anderson on, who's been on this show, who was great, as well as Laura Edwards Leeper. Um, Erica Anderson is if they were going to have any clinician on, I'm glad that it was it was Erica Anderson, and uh, because Erica Anderson, as she said on 60 Minutes and as she said on the show, is really much more cautious about things like youth transition than a lot of other people working in this space. And she's very critical of doctors who sort of um, jump into this and in some cases don't know what they're doing. She says at one point, there are healthcare providers who have just jumped into this area because trans people are interesting. Oh, I have one of them now. And then she says, I think that's deplorable. So Erica Anderson was, was as always, bold, but also talked about this in a nuanced way. Still, there were some detransitioners who were upset about this because the show was really only like half about detransition, and I can understand that. But the thing is, and I think they realize this, you have to do this sort of hedging when you talk about this issue. And maybe it's not even worth it because the reaction, as we're going to talk about, is going to be negative anyway. But like when when I wrote my piece on detransition in 2017 – about half the fucking piece just goes out, like go out of my way to like assure people that, you know, that 
trans people should trans adults especially should have access to healthcare that there that transphobia does exist that there are transphobic laws blah 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 and you just sort of have to do that and i'm kind of sick of it because if yeah. the reaction's going to be like fuck you you're transphobic anyway why bother why bother doing all of this sort of this what is essentially virtue signaling and i did it in my well, yeah, sorry go ahead well but the well the, the why bother is like if I think what we wrote in both of our pieces is stuff we believe. Absolutely. It's just a matter of how much emphasis we would put on it. So the why bother is like you're giving readers or listeners or viewers the the full story, which is But there – I totally agree with you, but – you can get that side of the story. You've already gotten that side of the story. Everybody gets that yeah. side of the story. There is no lack of, of of stories in the media about the problems with these these healthcare bills. We've done several segments on these bills too. Like you can get that anywhere. You don't need to go to sixty minutes to hear about why these healthcare bills are bad. And if sixty minutes is going to be the only outlet that will actually share detransitioner stories, I do sort of wish that the entire segment could have been devoted just to detransitioners because we don't hear those stories in mainstream media ever, ever. Yeah. I mean, or rarely because we, I I think in part because of the reaction to our pieces, there has been this like complete, I I can't, there's British outlets, like the the BBC is maybe the most uh, traditionally liberal outlet that will sometimes cover these issues at least in like from the side, maybe the garden occasionally. American outlets, there is like something approaching a blackout on this issue. I'm not saying it's intentional, but like there have been major developments in the science of youth gender medicine uh, at the same time that these laws have have been proposed. The difference is those developments highlight the gaps in the research. There was a major review by the United, the, the UK, basically saying we don't have good evidence here. The Karolinska Institute in Sweden stopped doing youth transition because of the lack of evidence. Although I think they're, are they doing blockers still? I believe they're not doing blockers either. Um, wow. Yeah. So, and again, that doesn't mean these decisions are right, but but these. It, these are important factors if your goal is to understand the strength of the evidence, which we should all want to do, and they get no coverage. And the, what the fucked up thing that is happening is if you go to the National Review or the Federalist, you'll get plenty of stuff on detransitioners and on these other developments. But that makes it easier to say that anyone who's interested in detransition or wants to talk about the diagnostic procedures must be some sort of like closet reactionary when the fact is a lot of mainstream clinicians agree with Erica Anderson and Laura Edwards Leeper that this is like becoming a little bit of a wild west. You know, the reaction to this was so swift even before the show the show premiered. Can we talk a little bit about the the struggle to actually get the show on the air? So yeah, I mean, like Jenny Boylan, who's a New York Times call, uh, at least contributing writer and a trans woman, accomplished writer on not just trans stuff, but but writing in general. Uh, she did a long tweet storm back in, I want to say, uh, back in March, uh, basically raising concerns about the segment and raising the alarm bells. And then someone named... Uh, I don't know who this is. P.F. Picardi. He he works for Crook. Oh, oh, he's big. Uh, um, P.F. He might have changed his name. Um, he founded them, which is like a big new uh, trans-related publication. Here's he was. Yeah, he was the head of like of like Vogue or something like that. Um, Philip Picardi. Yeah, he was the he he was the former editor in chief of Out. He began at Teen Vogue. Um, he's a yeah, he's a big deal. So here's what he said in, on March 20. This was 
two months before the segment aired. The media illiteracy around trans folks is nothing short of dangerous. I hope the folks at 60 Minutes know there's a human toll to their irresponsibility. Each and every person affiliated with selecting this narrative for airtime should be held accountable. This is months before the segment comes out, before anyone knows what's happening and and what it's going to be about. And I I don't usually do this, but I'm just going to read my response to him on Twitter. What's your proposed accountability that will sufficiently wipe clean the moral slates of the people responsible for the segment you haven't watched yet because it hasn't aired yet? Meaning to call for accountability just because 60 Minutes chose to do something on detransition without knowing what it was. All of which is to say the same should happen with my Atlantic article. People wrote to to the publisher outraged at what they thought the story was going to be about. And then everyone was primed to be pissed off, whatever the subsequent content was. And that's what happened here. So should I just read a couple of the crazier responses like after the thing actually came out? Right. I mean, from what we know, like there was a fair amount of pressure from activist organizations to get this and some big figures to get this shut down before it ever aired. So think about that. Before this thing airs, People are trying to shut it down. Just the mere mention of the fact that de- that de- CNN is going to talk about detransitioners. Not CNN. Oh, uh, whatever. CBS. CBS. 60 minutes. 69 minutes. So uh, let me read a little bit of Glad did a, a deranged tweet storm about this. Full disclosure, I, they put me on like some enemies list because I wrote about detransitioners. They're basically trying to punish anyone who talks about diagnostic procedures or detransition with regard to trans youth. Here's part of what they said. Tonight, 60 Minutes Leslie Stahl aired a shameful segment fear-mongering about trans youth. Parents of trans youth could walk away with the false belief that young people are being rushed into medical transition. The segment included young people being rushed into medical transition. This idea that you could just be like, nope, nope, doesn't happen. I mean, that's just... Why is Glad just sort of telling people this thing that clearly happens sometimes doesn't happen? It's so irresponsible. I don't know why. I mean, this is an advocacy group. I think that at this point, like my faith in activists is if an activist says something, I'm automatically going to fucking question it, which is unfair. But Glad has ruined it for the rest of you. Um, Yeah, it's so fucking irresponsible. Well, so is the ACLU. I mean, they're all. Yeah. Yeah. the segment also wrongfully implied that trans YouTubers and online communities which affirm trans youth are somehow brainwashing kids and turning them trans. This is dangerous and at the same time ridiculous. Aren't we past arguing that media can turn people gay or trans? I I wrote a little bit about this in my newsletter. This is so disingenuous. Because first of all, sometimes sometimes people temporarily do think they might be gay or lesbian because of pure influence. That's absolutely something that happens. There's a reason like lesbian until graduation is is a thing. No? It, right. Now we get, it's non-binary until graduation. Now it's the lugs are gone. Now it's nugs. No, it's right. Um, which again, and, and in that case, like whatever, who cares? But to deny kids are ever swayed in their identities by, by ex- external influence. The difference is if someone is a lesbian until graduation, who cares? They could be a lesbian until graduation. This, this segment was about healthcare, about hormones, about surgery. And it included people who'd had, um, surgeries. They very much now regret, including a, a kid who had an orchiotomy removal of his testicles at, like three months after coming out. Obviously these kids were somewhat influenced by something into thinking they had to get surgery immediately. Uh, to to frame this as, oh, so you're saying media turns people trans. Like, not really. It's more media might cause people dealing with other things to pin those problems on gender dysphoria. Right. I mean, there's just this absolute refusal to acknowledge that there is some element of of social contagion, of peer pressure uh, when it comes to, to trans issues. And we've talked about this on the podcast before. 
but it bears repeating here. Almost all aspects of human behavior have some element of of social influence, right? There are very few things that we do that are not entire, like at least partly influenced by the people around us. This is part of being a human. It's part of being living in a society. There's nothing wrong with that. This is not a judgment. I mean, you can see this just like the other day I was walking down, I was like walking in Seattle and I was just sort of observing the groups of people that were, that were walking past me. And I noticed that people tend to dress alike, right? So it's like pretty rare that you're going to see someone who's like super goth walking down the street with someone who like looks like a football player. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's true. Like we just, we tend to mirror the people around us. And in some ways, you know, you can look at that and be like, oh, well, you know, you can be judgmental about it. People are sheep. You know, that's not really, the, you shouldn't, it, we shouldn't be judgmental about this because this is just a part of being a human, right? But we're supposed to pretend that in this one respect, there can be no social influence. And if you say that you're trans, you're automatically trans. And it's this deep felt thing. It's biological, probably. It's it's something to do with your soul. Your brain is born in the wrong fucking whatever. I think, it, I mean, I think in a few cases, it is true with people who are dysphoric from a very Oh, own, for sure. Yeah, but, but the, for sure. They're not the cases that were being highlighted in this piece. But even, but even coming out of like, yes, you can be deeply dysphoric, but even the, 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 uh, the act of coming out yes, does probably have something to do with peer influence. It has something to do with society changing. Like, these are not judgments. This is just how human behavior works. The shittiest thing Glad did, and this really pissed me off, uh, they, in the sweet storm, they also said, furthermore, failing to disclose that a person profiled in the story is the president of a group that actively seeks to limit transition-related health care is poor journalism and a disservice to viewers. Uh, the person in question is Grace Ladinsky-Smith. She's, I guess, in her like early 20s. She had a, a mastectomy. She now regrets because she was just rushed through to medical care, which were, you know, never... She says within the segment, she came out as trans, had top, went on hormones, had top surgery, and detransitioned all within the space of a year. That's horrific. I mean, that it's just, it's... That is not how the system is supposed to work. But, of course, Glad doesn't tell us any of that. Anyway, um, when they say uh, she's part of this organization, it's the Gender Care Consumer Advocacy Network. She's one of three people on its board at the moment. One of them is Corinna Cohn, uh, who's come up on this podcast before. She's a trans woman. The other one is a detransitioner. Describing this organization – And it was – sorry, we should also say it was also founded by Carrie Callahan, who's been a, a previous guest on this podcast and who uh, – if you haven't listened to that episode, I, I recommend uh, going back and listening to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, the point of this organization is not to cut people off from care. It is to improve the quality of gender-related health care. And it's it's just really disingenuous for GLAD, which is trying to make this discussion impossible to have of how to get transgender and gender nonconforming people good health care, trying to talk about the quality of the care they receive. GLAD's trying to make that conversation impossible, then turning around and bashing one of the few organizations that's actually working toward that goal. So I, I just think this was like a really disgusting performance by GLAD. Uh, close personal friend of the podcast, Chase Strangio at the ACLU, also put out a really bad tweet storm, just completely pathologizing this discussion. None of these people have any actual expertise diagnosing or working with trans or gender nonconforming kids. The idea that that because you're trans yourself, you you know all about this stuff is is crazy. I've used this analogy before. That's like saying because I'm Jewish, I automatically know about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, just watching these organizations' responses was so demoralizing, but not surprising because this has been going on for years now. If you are a journalist or an academic who wants to treat this like the difficult subject it is, 
uh, there is a very high price to pay for this. They will try to destroy your reputation and career. Uh, did you see the Jack Turbin tweet, Storm? I, I can't even with this is a guy who he's a fellow in psychiatry, but he's treated anyway. Go ahead, what did he say? Right. This is a guy who is not actually an expert on these things, but he has written for places like Scientific American about trans girls in sports um, and other places like that. But he's again, he is not an expert on this. Um, so so Jack's tweet. When I spoke with 60 Minutes about their detransition story and asked where they found people to profile, they refused to tell me and became defensive. We still don't know if they search for people on turf forums and transparency would be appreciated. So the fact that 60 Minutes talked to Jack Turbin, I think reflects well on the producers of 60 Minutes. Certainly he should not, he was not on the show. He was not used as an expert at all. But the, the fact that they talked to him at all shows that they really did a like very wide, you know, speaking to 30 detransitioners, talking to people like Jack Turbin, who really shouldn't be speaking on this issue at all. But at least like it shows that they did their homework and they know who the players are. Um, and the fact that they didn't have him actually on the show also reflects well of them. People, people are going to get mad at me because Turbin has like a very Ivy League pedigree and has published some research. He has said stuff in interviews that have just my eyes have bulged out. And for example, he went on uh, on the media to say that that no underage kids get surgeries in the it's U.S. It's not true. Kids. It's not true. That's just completely fucking like you are you are either lying to potentially hundreds of thousands or billions of people. I don't know their listenership. Um, or you don't know your shit. You you cannot. Anyway, I feel bad. I don't like doing the drive-by criticizing this guy thing. I do want to write about his research at some point. But uh, again, it tells you something that someone who is a fellow in psychiatry is treated as a go-to expert to the point where 60 Minutes is calling him. This is because the activist organizations will point you to a small subset of clinicians and clinicians in training who will give the right quotes. So so this is part of the problem, just who is considered an expert and who isn't. Um, He's also no expert on journalism because the idea that he's going to like demand that 60 Minutes tell him their sources is just fucking ridiculous yeah who the fuck are you i don't have to tell it would also he sounds like a 20 year old on tumblr oh they got it from a turf forum what what if what if they found a detransitioner on a gender critical forum who had a really compelling story does jack turbin think that that would render the story invalid also is it shocking that people who think they've got bad medical care might subsequently you know go down certain political it's just they anyone Anyone who comes out as a detransitioner, their reputations will just be trashed and ruined. Totally. Um, I'm glad you brought up that on the media segment. I haven't listened to it, but I heard that it was egregiously bad. Can you just give us some of the highlights? Yeah. So on the media did this whole episode on trans issues. It started a very sanctimonious way with Brooke Gladstone basically pulling the whole like, you know, this is actually really simple. It's just about giving people's rights and treating anyone who disagrees as like a backwards bigot. Uh, she said something about how they're going to mostly give the show over to trans voices. And then they bring Jack Turbin on <laughs> to talk about the, 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 the diagnostic stuff. Turbin, in my view, gets a lot of basic stuff wrong. So one thing people often do is say like, no, you don't transition unless you've had a lot of a lot of therapy, a lot of assessment. In the US, all the guidelines are non-binding. The argument that some detransitioners are making is people aren't following the so-called WPATH standards of care. Those are the standards of care put out by the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. Now, not everyone agrees those standards are good, but one argument is like if you're a doctor and you're going to give hormones to a 14-year-old, you should at least follow them. If it were the case that everyone were following these standards, 
it would be silly for people like us to worry about kids being not getting good care. But we have a a multitude, a, a, a big pile of, of stories of kids getting put on hormones right away. I'm not saying that always happens, and I'm not saying there aren't kids who don't have access to hormones, but to just be like, no, there, there's diagnostic standards in place. Uh, so he said that. That annoyed me. He said the thing about surgery, which is just like – completely dead wrong. Uh, he said the, the regret rate is, I think, 0.5%, which is just, in this context, a completely made-up statistic because we have no idea what the regrets rate are for youth clinics in the U.S. I actually emailed him about that just to be like, you know, where did you get that um, statistic? And I should correct myself. He said under 1%. I don't think he said 0.5%. Wait, did he write you back? He did not write me back, no. I'm shocked. You know, I'm really curious about how history is going to judge these people. You know, I mean, I think about this fairly often, like, and I'm and I'm not sure what the answer will be. You know, in 10 years, are we going to look back at this moment and think like, what the fuck? There's a rash of detransitioners. There's a rash of children who were who feel like they were harmed um, because they were fast tracked through this healthcare. And people like Jack Turbin, like, what's going to happen? What is this going to look like? I'm fairly convinced that that history will judge you and I kindly on this. Um, not totally sure. Who knows? Who knows? Really. But I think it's also worth noting, noting here that like some of these clinicians who are the most prominent and have what we could probably say is the least nuanced views on this are like there's a clinician we've talked about on the show before, Diane Ehrenschaft. Ehrenschaft. There's certain names you're saying. I cannot say her name. Ehrenschaft. 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 Dirty. Uh, who was so she's a, she's hugely prominent in this field. She advocates for you know like toddlers being able to declare that they are transgender and then we need to affirm them, literal toddlers. And in the eighties and nineties, she was one of these psychologists who was involved in satanic panic. This is a very bad thing, and like somehow that th- this has been erased. She she never seems to have paid any sort of real cost for this, and now she is. One of these, these, you know, clinician or psychologist activist, uh, who is considered an authority on this, on this, this case. So I'm really curious about what's going to happen. Um, what do you think is going to, what do you think is going to happen, Jesse? I don't know. You know, it could, it could be we'll look back in 10 years and think that we find out we, um, overstated the dangers. I'm, I'm okay with that possibility because I've never said, oh, this is so worrisome, no one should transition. I've just said assessment is good. I think there's zero chance 10 years from now I'm going to be like, oh my God, I can't believe I said 12-year-olds that they should be carefully assessed before you put them on hormones with permanent – I mean, I've I've taken a very sort of small C conservative stance. I will say – and I, I'm, I'm working on some stuff on this front um, – the level of research and thinking that goes into this subject is fucking abysmal. I, I saw Scientific American quote a study as evidence uh, that kids should start transitioning earlier rather than later. And that like jumped out at me because I was like, I'm not aware of any study that says that that weighs in on that particular question. I think the ages were 11 and 16. I click on the link. This is a study that where they just took the baseline characteristics of kids who had just arrived at a gender clinic. One cohort was 11 years old. One was 16 years old. None of them had been treated yet. So this study, first of all, doesn't tell us anything about the effects of treatment. They found the 16-year-olds were more mentally ill than the 11-year-olds. And Scientific American said, therefore, we got to get people into into gender care earlier. Wait, 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 wait. Because – 
Did they like not consider any other possibility why sixteen-year-olds might be more depressed than eleven-year-olds? Scientific American did not. So, like, so like, if you like, if here's just here's here, yeah. Have you heard of puberty? Right, right. If you're familiar with adolescent <laughs> psychology at all, including very little, like I am, I like took AP Psych. Any group of sixteen-year-olds is going to be more mentally ill than any group of eleven-year-olds, and and even in the paper itself, which had some very big names on it, they point to that possibility. But they're also like, yeah, this could be evidence that we should start kids on on blockers and hormones earlier. That's an insane claim. There, you cannot take a group of sixteen-year-olds and a group of eleven-year-olds and and make any assumptions about what's causing their differences in mental health here, because sixteen-year-olds are always more fucked up than eleven-year-olds. So that gets translated to Scientific American as, yeah, we should start kids on. I mean, this is just like I use the term Wild West to describe like the clinical landscape. It's the same with the research. It's so bad. Some of some of Turbin's research is like these correlational studies where. He basically argues that um, because kids who – people who later in life say they wanted to get blockers but weren't able to access them have more mental health problems than people who wanted wanted blockers and were able to access them – you know, that tells us we should put kids on blockers if we want them or it suggests that. But the problem is it could be that kids who were more mentally ill when they were 14 met clinicians who are like, well, I'm not going to start you on hormones when you have all these other mental health problems. Like there's all these other possible explanations for these correlational relationships that just go completely um, unmentioned. And and there's really poor research being published in major journals solely because it tells the right story, which is, is all – in a very unnuanced way, transition, transition, transition. And this does not help people who have gender dysphoria to have shitty research and, and activist clinicians who make false claims out in the media landscape. I, I, it's, it's really bad right now. Yeah. And then, so not only do you have shoddy research being published, you have the communication about that shoddy research and how it is, how it is conveyed to the public. Right. So the research itself is shit, but science journalism is also shit. You know, oftentimes, like, I hate to say this like, because I've done this too, but oftentimes what you're doing, not for like legit good science journalists, but if you're just like a person like trying to fill your, your content hole for the day, if you're working for some outlet. Katie, fill, <laughs> Katie will you fill my content hole? <laughs> That's so fucking foul. Um, it's just like report by press release or not even report by press release, report by, you know, some study gets published, it gets, uh, it gets picked up somewhere. And then you just like aggregate the write up about the study itself. And you yeah. might have no particular expertise. You might not know anything about how to judge the methodology. So you just, and these things just compound each other. So bad research compounded by, by a, 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 an unskeptical media. That just reports whatever the fuck they see. Again, I, this is, I wanted to make sure I'm not um, casting Scientific American in a bad light. In a paper published last year, the team found that youth who received treatment at an earlier age were mentally healthier than those who did not receive it until later. No one in this study had started treatment. It's just, it's Scientific American, supposedly the best science publication in the world, or one of them, uh, just mangling a basic study. And this is endemic in this area. And it's frustrating. The answer is not to ban transition. I think that's just as horrible. The answer is to like, think this through like any other bio, like uh, bioethical issue. It is, this is, these are serious treatments and, and they're treated so flippantly by people with authority. And I find that infuriating as do you, because you've talked to detransitioners. The rhetoric after the show came, the 60 minutes episode came out was a lot about like 
trans people and activists and especially prominent trans people saying like, you know, like basically saying that these people's voices shouldn't be heard because they're too small of a minority. First of all, we don't actually know how many there are. We have no, we idea. Have no idea. We have n- nobody has any idea. And if they're if they tell you that they do, they're lying. Um, but also, if that's the standard, like if we shouldn't be talking about small minority experiences, why is anybody why is anybody talking about trans shit in the first place? It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I mean, there's like there's a version of that ar- argument that would make sense if it was like. If like, you know, the ex-gay stuff, people who, who, but again, it's just the stakes are so much lower there. And the reason to talk about it is in the U.S., we haven't figured out what our actual policies are going to be on youth transition. The standards of care give very thin guidelines. They really don't. I think the SOC 8, which is coming out, I guess, by the end of the year will be better, I bet. But there's a lot of uncertainty. If you're like the average child psychologist and you come across this, you might not know where to get like good accurate information the reason to talk about it is because like we're still trying to figure it out and again the uk government looks into all the data on youth transition and comes away saying the evidence for this is very weak we desperately need more data these are serious treatments it is a much bigger deal than like social transitioning of a of a five-year-old although i'd argue even that should be done carefully but this is a much bigger deal and people should stop being so goddamn flippant about it it's really not good Right. One thing that gives me a little bit of hope is that when I wrote my detransition piece in 2017, it was pretty hard to find detransitioners willing to speak to me and almost impossible to find detransitioners willing to put their, their, attach their name to it. And that has changed. Um, detransitioners are pretty visible online now. The detransition subreddit have, I, I, checking on every once in a while. There's so many people asking questions and trying to get help. Really, it's sad that they're going to a fucking subreddit to get to get advice that they should have gotten from from, you know, clinicians, from their actual doctors and therapists. Well, and it's sad and it's because the the turbans and the glads and the chase strangers of the world are making it harder for them to get healthcare. I'm sorry, I don't want to pin it on individuals, but they're absolutely making this a toxic right. And so people are going to the internet to get to get any sort of advice. Um, but what what makes me hopeful hopeful about this is that there really are a number of detransitioners who are totally willing to be visible and they're talking about their experience and it's. I'm like kind of shocked that CNN did this or see whatever it's called 60 minutes. I'm kind of shocked that they did this, this episode at all. Um, because that's, that's how, how constricted this conversation is in the, in the mainstream media right now. And they did it. And so I, maybe this shows that something is changing. Yep. Hopefully it's a good sign. At the very least, like the average 60 minutes viewer is not some hyper online person and has no fucking clue what a turf is, let alone a turf forum. Katie, why don't we ever get invited to the turf forums or even the, tur- <laughs> the we're, and also we're dinner party turfs, but we've never been invited to a dinner party. Oh, they're mad at us about the Graham Linehan thing. That's what it is. That's true. Yeah, that's true. All right. Are we ranted out on this? Yeah, I think that's all I wanted to say about it. Um, we'll put a link to the 60 Minutes episode in the show notes and uh, it's really worth checking out. Yeah, I don't mean to be so negative about Turbin or these other guys. I just, I just think it's very easy or it should be very easy if you're like a young, up-and-coming, on-paper-accomplished uh, researcher, clinician like Turbin, you, you can just be a little bit more measured about this and understand that maybe detransitioners – like in one of the papers he co-authored, he basically said we shouldn't use the term detransitioner because it offends trans people. That that tells you where he's coming from, that you won't even use the term this group uses for itself because you're mad someone else will get mad about it. I, I think it's pretty clear he doesn't value – a lot of these guys don't really value 
what detransitioners are telling them. And you should, because this is a very new area of medicine. I Here, I'm going off on a rant again. Let's just, let's leave it at that. All right, Jesse, enough ranting. Should we move on? Let's do it. Katie, I don't know about you, but I've been spending a lot of time on the toilet lately. In fact, I spend so much time on the toilet that I've recently installed a desk in my... Katie, do I have to say this? Jesse, just read the script. I'm a journalist, okay? I can't lie. I have integrity. I've only been spending a normal amount of time on the toilet lately, like maybe six or seven hours a day. Jesus fucking Christ, I hate you, Katie. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear about your bowel trouble, Jesse, but I do suspect that your Hello Tushy modern bidet attachment has made the experience a little more bearable. It has, which is exactly why I'm excited about the Hello Tushy Father's Day sale so I can give my dad the same sparkling clean feeling. Dad wiped your ass for years. Return the favor with the perfect gift for Father's Day from Hello Tushy. Bring your pops into the future with the brand new Hello Tushy 3.0 modern bidet attachment. It's stylish, eco-friendly, easy to install, and will help stop him from flushing his retirement down the toilet. When we say anyone can figure this shit out, we mean even your parents. Yes, yours. The Hello Tushy 3.0 attaches to their existing toilet with no electricity, extra plumbing, or tech support FaceTime required. Plus, every Hello Tushy bidet attachment comes with a 60-day risk-free guarantee and a 12-month warranty. Dad already got a Hello Tushy on his pot? Blow him away with an upgrade to the new Hello Tushy 3.0. If he's new to the revolution, have him join millions of happy Hello Tushy customers right now for a clean butt with every flush. Give the gift of a clean butt. Go to hellotushy.com slash barpod to get 10% off plus free shipping. This is a special offer for our listeners at hellotushy.com slash barpod for 10% off. hellotushy.com slash barpod. So, Katie, have you had any good uh, bat or pangolin soup lately? Oh, every day, Jesse, every Sunday. That's, uh, that's what I do after church, eat pangolin soup. Ah, it's so good. It's just, there's something to like the umami flavors that, um, that I really I like it with a little bit of like an iceberg lettuce salad on the side with a bunch of ranch. Uh, <laughs> iceberg, I'm trying Does to that picture that. Good? It's like a curled up dead pangolin, <laughs> uh, spit roasted iceberg. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that if I, if I weren't vegetarian. <laughs> uh, well, it's funny that I should have chosen to talk about this because there's some news in the origin of coronavirus story. What are the chances? What are the chances? Well, not really news, Katie, more uh, a little bit of revision. So do you remember that there is a theory that the virus was accidentally released from a, uh, a Wuhan laboratory, but we all rejected that theory because it was obviously racist and would lead immediately to like pe- putting people in internment camps? Well, I didn't reject the theory because I am racist. Um, but yes, I am aware that what you're talking about. <laughs> Your racism accidentally led you in the right direction, perhaps. Well, I figured it was going to be racist one way or the, another. It's going to be racist to think that there's a lab leak, or it's going to be racist to say that Chinese people eat bats. <laughs> right, right. There's racism. I thought I was, yeah, I thought I was going with the least racist option. Apparently not. Right. So, so there's been in the last week or two like a sea change where. It has basically been acknowledged by some powerful, authoritative people, not that the lab leak hypothesis is true, but that it is a possibility worth taking seriously. A lot of this comes down to uh, President Biden, uh, what the New York Times described as an abrupt order to U.S. intelligence agencies to investigate the origins of the coronavirus. Uh, it, people have realized that this the lab theory is not so debunked, basically. There's a big article 
in New York Magazine a ways back. Um, but but the real story here, because we don't we still don't know where the virus came from. We can't say the lab, and we, we probably won't. We likely ever. won't because the Chinese government is not known for transparency, uh, especially on an issue like this. But but the story here that's been really well told by uh, John Chait, former guest of the podcast, in particular, is the way the media screwed this up. So so basically. Early on last year, around January, February, Donald Trump suggested that maybe this came from a lab. Um, it, it, there were also there's also a conspiracy theory that it was intentionally developed as a bioweapon. That theory has always been a little bit deranged and didn't make sense. Whereas the idea of something escaping from this like secure uh, biomedical research facility is less crazy. That's the sort of thing that happens sometimes. Tom Cotton also made a comment basically suggesting this might be a possibility. I don't believe he ever said it is. He just said, like, this could be what happened. Um, What happened was all these media outlets, because Trump and Cotton said this, immediately described the theory as debunked. So... All NPR, Slate, Slate brings in the racism angle. Headline is where the coronavirus bioweapon conspiracy theories really come from. Turns out it's racism. That's the only reason people believe this. What all these like professional outlets did was conflate two different theories, the intentional bioweapon theory and the accidental lab leak theory. Um, and you just have this like this parade of people last year describing this theory as debunked, saying it's racist to believe in it. Uh, in April, NPR reported virus researchers say there is virtually no chance that the new coronavirus was released as a result of a laboratory accident in China or anywhere else. As Jade points out, if you then read like the reporting that follows, nowhere is it debunked. So it's like all these outlets almost took on this activist role of saying like, no, 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 we're not going to talk about this theory. And in many cases overstated uh, their own evidence. So yeah, I mean, have you been following this much? It's just, it's sort of infuriating that so many, you know, it might, it might not be true, but just watching, there's this like Twitter mode of like, oh my God, I can't believe you would say that. Everyone knows that's debunked. That is so obnoxious and sanctimonious and seems to, to lure a lot of journalists in dumb directions. Right. I, I had forgotten about this, but uh, I was on Megan Downs' podcast like last August. She tweeted this yesterday, which reminded me. And apparently I told her that I had right around that time, I had told somebody that I knew that about this like lab leak hypothesis. And what I told Megan was that was that she looked at me, this person looked at me as though Alex Jones was coming out of my forehead, which <laughs> did happen because there was this, you know, this was before the election. Uh, and there was this, I think, maybe understandable, aggravating, but understandable um, desire to uh, refute anything that Donald Trump said. And if Donald Trump or Tom Cotton or whatever said that this was a, said that this was potentially a lab leak, that means it couldn't be a lab leak. And there are real problems with this when our response to a public health crisis becomes tribal. And we saw this with like, for instance, in the very beginning of COVID, when, uh, when Trump was talking about closing the borders and the response from some people in the media was to say like, oh no, this is just like another xenophobic, racist, like anti-immigration stance by Donald Trump when like clearly the borders needed to be fucking yeah, closed. And, and in much the same way you had journalists with no real expertise of like the epidemiology of border closings chime in confidently on that. You had a lot of journalists like in effect suggesting we could trust the Chinese government when they said like, no, that's not where it came from. 
Um, which it just, again, it goes to show you that this idea that journalists should really be thinking a ton about which avenues to pursue for political reasons or activist reasons will often lead you astray. It also, again, it doesn't make sense to say the lab leak hypothesis is racist, but the wet market hypothesis isn't racist. I, if anything, that other one seems more racist because it ties into like stereotypes about uh, Chinese eating. I mean, I don't think either of them is inherently racist, but um, I, I just, I don't know. I, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's such a, that like the American obsession with, with racism, like, is it racist if an Italian talks about the the origin of the disease? Like we're acting, we are like imposing our own racial tension on this global, uh, like this global crisis where it's really not warranted. And that makes it hard to have actual conversations about the possibility of the origin of the fucking disease because everybody's so hyper conscious of and, and paranoid about appearing racist. Yeah. It, this just sort of, made me i hadn't been following it that closely i hadn't been following like the the debunking of the lab leak hypothesis so closely but it, it reminded me of other areas including what we were just talking about detransition and trans stuff where like i have done some reporting and know some stuff watching people who know nothing about these subjects just wander in and confidently proclaim what can and can't be said what is right what is wrong I think this is becoming more and more common among what were traditionally sort of news reporter types, and it's it's making journalism much worse. And it it makes like for those of us who are aware of what's going on, it makes it incredibly hard to trust anything you read. Um, are you familiar with the Gelman amnesia effect? Yes, Gelman. Gelman. Gelma. Gelman. I yeah. Gelman. I think it's basically the idea of um, if if when tell me if I have this right when when news media touches on a subject you're familiar with and fucks it up. You're like, wow, they did a really bad job on that. But then you assume that it's one of the subjects you don't know about, like tax policy or epidemiology. They're doing it competently there, right? Right. So this comes from Michael Crichton. So this is uh, in 20, in, I'm sorry, in, in 2002, he gave a speech at La Jolla. And I'll just read you a little bit. Briefly stated, the Gelman amnesia effect is as follows. You open the newspaper to an article on some subject you know well. Uh, in Murray's case, and Murray is Murray Gel uh, Gelman, Physics. He's a Nobel Prize winning physicist. And mine, show business. You read the article and see that the journalist has absolutely no understanding of either the facts or the issues. Often the article is so wrong that it actually presents the story backward, reversing cause and effect. I call these wet streets cause rain stories, papers <laughs> full of them. In any case, you read with exasperation or amusement that multiple, that the multiple errors in a story and then turn the page to the national or international affairs and read as if the rest of the newspaper was somehow more accurate about Palestine than the baloney just read. You turn the page and you forget what you know. I do this all the fucking time. Like I criticize NPR all the time because I hear them say stuff like report inaccurately on shit I, I know about. And then I continue to fucking listen to it and for some reason trust what they're saying. And this actually, this actually happened in our last episode. I should have, uh, I should, I should have corrected this at the top. But I got a message from a reporter in um, in Eastern Washington the other day. Our last episode was about Hannah Nicole Jones. Nicole and- Hannah Jones. This is <laughs> God. You have like brain damage about this. How can anybody trust this podcast either when I can't get this fucking name right? Um, Nicole Hannah Jones. It was about. Uh, about what happened with her at the University of North Carolina, but also about what is happening in these statewide, um, statewide, uh, bills to ban critical theory. And I said, I was, I had just, I was like basically reading an NPR headline 
the headline that I had read was Idaho governor signs bill to ban critical race theory in schools. And then I, I read the introduction. This is by a guy named James Dawson. Uh, a governor in Idaho has signed a bill to ban the teaching of critical race theory in public schools. Some educators in the state are calling it unnecessary and a potential violation of free speech. And then I read the next section, and this is Michelle Martin, the host of, of um, like the weekend All Things Considered show, and she says the same thing. Um, this week, Idaho Governor Brad Little signed a bill pushed by Republican state lawmakers that aims to outlaw teaching critical race theory and other social justice concepts in public schools. So I read that, I listened to the report, and I said on this podcast, based on this, that Idaho was banning the teaching of critical race theory. I heard from a reporter who covers this, and it's actually much more complicated. I will, uh, I will put a link to the show. We're not going to get into it, but I will put a link into in the in the show notes to this reporter's piece that explains what actually is happening in Idaho. But this is an example of this. I criticize NPR all the time, and then for some reason, I still fucking trust them and and manage to introduce an error into this podcast because even though I know that they're wrong about so much shit, for some reason, I turn the page and forget everything I already knew. Yeah, I, I was obviously complicit in that too. Uh, yeah, I, it sucks that on that that subject too of the these laws, which again I'm I'm against state governments having much say in in, in these trainings. But um, there's been a lot of exaggeration of the actual content of the laws, including some journalists will say like they ban diversity trainings, which they don't. But anyway. Um, one important bit of context I left out on why the on the resurgence of the lab leak hypothesis is U.S. intelligence believes that three lab researchers from that lab in Wuhan were hospitalized with coronavirus. That's not dispositive. They could have got it for other reasons, but it obviously points you toward the lab leak uh, hypothesis evidence-wise. So, right. I mean, this Megan Dalm also did a podcast about the lab leak hypothesis, I think sometime last year, and I listened to it. We can put a link to the show notes. She talks to two epidemiologists, and it's worth listening to because they sort of lay out the cases for and against. And it's all circumstantial on both sides. This is circumstantial. Like, the, I mean, if you recall, like the animal that people, uh, you know, were attributing this, this, this disease to, this virus to, kept changing. It was a bat, it was a pangolin, whatever. Um, they've never found the exact animal. Um, the same thing is true of the lab leak hypothesis. Like there's all of the, the evidence for both cases is circumstantial, but there's some pretty compelling circumstantial evidence. Yeah. So I thought the worst tweet on this was from a New York Times reporter who in her profile mentions that she covers coronavirus, Apurva Mandavili. She tweeted, Someday we will stop talking about the lab leak theory and maybe even admit its racist roots. But alas, that day is not yet here. So that's like May 26 at a time when a lot of people, including the U.S. government, still take the lab leak hypothesis seriously. She is doing us the service of broadcasting that she has decided on the basis of no evidence other than that she thinks it's racist uh, that we shouldn't even talk about it. So thank you, New York Times reporters, continuing to burnish their reputations on social media. Yeah. And the truth is, like, a lot of people have been talking about the lab leak hypothesis for a long time when it was still sort of um, uh, verboten in mainstream media. You had people like Brett Weinstein and, and Heather Hying, his wife, talking about it on their podcast. Josh Rogan, um, he he's a sometimes columnist for a couple major outlets, but he was writing about it on Medium. So it's not like this has never – it's it's not like it wasn't being talked about. It just wasn't being talked about in the New York Times. Um, and then the the piece that I think really changed this was the New York Magazine piece. Yeah, yeah. That was like a long investigative piece. And, you know, we're, we're sort of uh, 
less hierarchical media ecosystem these days, but it's still the case that if like New York Magazine gives print space to a to a subject, it's suddenly taken a lot more seriously. And that piece in New York Magazine is by Nicholson Baker, and we'll also put a link to that in the show notes. It's definitely worth reading if you have like an hour to spill cause, to spare because it's long as fuck. One other thing to note here is that not only was this until very recently not being discussed as anything other than like a conspiracy theory or racist in the mainstream media, it was also being suppressed by Facebook. Yeah, so so what was the exact rule? Did they ban anyone who 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 suggested it could be true? I'm actually not as familiar with this. So they weren't banning people as far as I know who suggested it was true, but they were labeling uh they were labeling posts about the lab leak hypothesis as like misinformation. I, people have been way too dovish on Facebook, just like making these unilateral decisions about what is and isn't misinformation. Uh, you know, I, it worries me. I, I don't, I don't want Facebook. I, I, at a certain point, you need to let people speculate about stuff everyone is speculating about. And I think Facebook's just taking way too heavy a hand on this stuff. Right. So they re- revised their policy this week. Um, and so what has changed? Well, you know, there's these reports from intelligence agencies. The Biden administration is looking into this. But really what has changed is Donald Trump is no longer the president. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm serious. I, I think that this is, a, you know, and that's one of the reasons I'm glad that he's not the fucking president is that maybe now we can talk about the things that need to be talked about. Um, but I do think that this is a direct result of the fact that he's no longer fucking president. Yeah, it's uh, we'll see what happens. I just I, you know, I always have this neuroticism and guilt and part of me feels like it's inevitably going to turn out the pandemic was my fault somehow. Oh, it was definitely your fault. Definitely. No question about it. I was eating a lot of bats. It's just like, it's so funny to see these like mostly liberal journalists and media outlets fall over themselves to in some ways like protect the Chinese Communist Party. <laughs> I know. I love it. It's just, it just shows you like, that's where you ended up in in your attempt to be moral and righteous and not racist is like, you are carrying water for a repressive regime that we absolutely shouldn't trust right. to tell us the truth. You're like, you're like, you're doing PR for the people who are committing actual fucking genocide. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh good times all around. Uh, anything else, Katie on this? I think that's it. We'll probably never get to the bottom of it. You think you and me can't get to the bottom of this? Oh, <laughs> if anybody can, it's us, you know, and, and, there are Matt Iglesias asked this in his column, like, does it really matter where the the leak came, or where the, the virus came from? I mean, it obviously does uh, because it, it, you know, if there are so, if there's something about the now we have a vaccine, so like things are things are getting better at least here in the U.S. But it does matter in terms of figuring out how to how to prevent disease, how to protect against disease. Um, would it have cha- if this were a lab leak? Would this have changed the U.S. response to it? Probably not. No. You know, um, well, if you know where the coronavirus started, you can email us at blockedreportedpodcast at gmail dot com, or you can join the subreddit reddit dot com slash r slash blockedreported. Uh, you can also buy merch barpod.org. Oh, we haven't been been insisting as frequently lately that people review us on Apple Podcasts, but you definitely should. Uh, we're at four point seven stars. Is it stars? Moons? Crescents? Whatever. We're at four point seven. We want to we want to get higher. What other things? Oh, buy my book, The Quick Fix. You gotta buy it. 
Katie, they have to buy it. Yes. What I'm about to say is actually much more important than your stupid book. We have a subscriber program. If you go to patreon.com slash blocked and reported and give us just $5 a month, you can get three bonus episodes of this podcast every every month with a bunch of other good shit. There's a great community there. Um, you can talk about the podcast. You can talk about what you had for lunch. I don't know. Um, and it, the, and our patrons are really the people who, who keep this podcast going and make us able to do this. So if you can join us and you want to support us, please go to patreon.com slash blocked and reported. You also, you for, failed to mention the biggest perk of all. What's that? If you join the Patreon after your first bill goes through, uh, you get immunity from the coronavirus and all future variants. Yes, it's a, it actually comes with a vaccine. Yeah, like a super vaccine only available to our, our patrons. So yeah, definitely. The other thing about it is that girls will stop talking to you. It's just a side effect of the vaccine, but don't worry about that. <laughs> girls don't talk to me anyway. It doesn't matter. Exactly. This has been Blocked and Reported. I'm Jesse Single. And remember, the true origin of the coronavirus is a wet market inside a research lab. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, if Jack Turbin calls you up and demands to know how you found out about this podcast, you are not obligated to tell him. <laughs> <laughs>